All right, so we're in the second week of our series, Right in the Eye, and we're looking at the book of Judges. And um, I need to remind you just a couple of things. This is the seventh book in the Bible. It is Joshua, Judges, Ruth. So Joshua um, dies in about 1380 B.C. Judges covers 300 years after his death until David comes on the scene around 1050 B.C. Now, Moses had led them out of Israel, out of Egypt, Israelites out of Egypt, and then he dies. Then Joshua takes over, leads them into the promised land. Let me just show you a couple of things on the map right right quick. Here are the 12 tribes. No, just the 12 tribes. Yeah, there we go. Okay, so um, why are there 12 tribes? Well, Abraham was the father of the Jewish nation. He had Isaac. Isaac had Jacob. Jacob had 12 sons, and each of his 12 sons uh, is the head of a tribe. That's what they call him. Now, Levi, we talked about a Levite last week. Levi didn't get to have any inheritance in the land because they were the priests, and their inheritance was God, so you don't see Levi anywhere on this map. And then Joseph was also a son of Jacob. Joseph doesn't have a tribe here, uh, a piece of land, because his two sons took his place. And so Joseph's two sons were Manasseh and and Ephraim down here. Now, here's what's going on. There's supposed to be one nation under God, a nation of law with no king. And this was a radical idea for 3000 years ago. It was so radical that it wasn't tried again until the United States became one nation under God, a nation of law without a king. Now the book of judges shows us, um, what happens, um, when you turn your back on God, Joshua dies and the people are in the land, but they don't fully drive out all of the inhabitants of the land. We'll talk about that in just a second. There's this cycle that they went through. They would, they would, uh, disobey God's commands. God would remove his hand of blessing from them. They would have a disaster come on the nation. They would cry out to God. God would deliver them from the disaster. This happened over and over again for 300 years. And last week we looked at the last story in the book of Judges. And it shows just how far the nation had fallen from God. And the very last verse of the book of Judges says this. 21:25. In those days, Israel had no king. All the people did whatever seemed right in their own eyes. Now, Judges ends kind of like Halloween 4 meets Deliverance. It's one of the strangest, if not the strangest stories in the Bible. If you haven't heard it, you need to read the last three chapters of Judges. You can get a CD, go to nlccp.com. You can, uh, if you ever go to our website down on the right hand corner, there's the last six or seven messages. If you go to multimedia or you go to audio or something on there, you can actually hear all 15 years of our messages, uh, since we've been a church. Now, so Judges ends with this really strange story. Today, we're going to go back to the beginning of Judges. We're actually going to go back to the last chapter of Joshua. Since Joshua was the leader that helped them get into the promised land and Joshua dies, he's trying to set them up for success. And and the, the beginning is very, very different from the end. The end is strange. The beginning is kind of like the last night of youth camp. How many of you have ever been to more than one youth camp? What happens every time on the last night of youth camp? What do the girls do? Cry. For no apparent reason. And and I had a girl tell me one time, she said, you know, all the girls just started crying. And I didn't know why. And then I started crying and I wasn't even sad. We just cried. It's just what they do. Even even um, Friday night at the Hillsong concert, we were so excited about going to see Hillsong at American Airlines Center. And when the curtain dropped, Hannah just started crying. And then Janie sitting next to me, Janie tears up. And I'm going, what in the world? It's okay. Just It, it just happens. Now, here's here's the deal. 
I'm not trying to minimize the last night of youth camp at all. It's a very, very emotional experience because what has happened is these students have been at camp all week. They've been away from distraction, been away from the TV, been away from, from family, friends. They've been away from their phones, the internet, all of these things. And they've heard unbelievable teaching from God. They've worshiped God every day. They may see dramas and videos and it's really impacted their lives. And it's very, very emotional. And, and I've heard the same thing about Trace Diaz at the end of Trace Diaz. It's a very emotional time because people are making commitments to God. They're drawing lines in the sand, they're going to say, I'm not going to be the same person I was anymore. This is a very, very big deal. Now at youth camp, here's some of the commitments that they tend to make on the last night of camp. Break up with my boyfriend or girlfriend because they are not helping me get close to God. They, they patch things up with their parents. I'm going to honor my parents for the first time in my life. They quit almost everything right in their lives because they know that that's taking them away from God. And and I'm not making fun of it at all. I'm serious. This is a huge deal. When I went to youth camp from the time I was in seventh grade, actually all the way for, for another 26 years, because I went to youth camp for 19 years as a youth minister. And every year, um, I would skip two baseball games. Now we would finish school on a Friday and then we would be on a bus heading to Salem Springs, Arkansas from the panhandle of Texas on Monday, every year, as soon as school was out on Monday, we would take off to youth camp. And, and I would be playing baseball. I played baseball from the time I was seven until I was 19. I actually played after, uh, in a league after my freshman year in college. And, and I was serious about baseball, but every year I would have to skip two games and it would be close to the end of the season. And every year my coach would go, dude, why would you leave us? We need you. We might lose the games. And I said, that's your problem. I'm going to go worship Jesus. And they would really give me a hard time. And I said, I don't care if we lose games. We're not good enough to win the league. If we lose those two games, I'm going to worship Jesus. And then the last night, I think it was the last night of my senior year is when I'm at camp. And when God pierced my heart and I said, God, I'll give you not just my heart, but I'll give you my life. I want to be a vocational minister for the rest of my life. So it's a big deal to make these commitments at youth camp, but the last night is kind of a Kleenex fest. So the beginning of judges is kind of like the last night of youth camp. Joshua is about to die. He gathers the nation and he gives them this big speech and he reminds them of all the incredible things God had done, miraculous things God had done when he brought them out of Egypt. Then he comes to commitment time. You know, he comes to the invitation. If you're, if you know the Baptist thing. So he said, God had made a covenant with your parents. Now God wants to make a covenant with you. And, and man, this is, and, and the covenant was this, follow my rules and you'll be blessed. Disobey my rules and you'll be cursed. And this is the great last night of camp sermon right here. And if God allows me to, I want to preach a sermon like this right before I die. I hope today's not that day, but if it is, you'll remember this sermon. All right. Here it is, Joshua 24, starting in verse 14. You follow along uh, up here, or if you have your, if you have a smartphone, you can go to U version, and, and the notes are on there. Joshua says this to the whole nation gathered together. So fear the Lord and serve Him wholeheartedly. Put away forever the idols your ancestors worshipped when they lived beyond the Euphrates River and in Egypt. Serve the Lord alone. But if you refuse to serve the Lord, then choose today whom you will serve. So this is basically this is code for break up with your boyfriend, your girlfriend, get rid of the stuff, your cigarettes, your whatever it is that's keeping you, that's polluting your life, keeping you from being a fully devoted follower of God, the stuff that's polluting you, get rid of it. And then he says, if you're not going to do that, at least have enough integrity to name the God that you're going to serve. Right? This is serious commitment here. 
Would you prefer the gods your ancestors served beyond the Euphrates? This was back when they were uh, in Egypt and, and in that area. Or will it be the gods of the Amorites? And those are lowercase g's, by the way. Gods of the Amorites in whose land you now live. So all of that territory I showed you, there were still pockets of resistance because they had not driven out all of the people like God had told them to do. He said, make a choice. And, and Joshua says, regardless of what you all choose... This is my, one of my favorite verses in Joshua. Here it is. He says, as for me and my family, we will serve the Lord. Regardless of what people are going to do, I'm going to serve God. That's what Joshua said. That's how I feel. I don't care what your choices are. I'm going to serve God. Me and my family, we're going to serve the Lord. Now look how the people responded in verse 16. The people replied, we would, what's that next word? Say it again. What's that next word? We would never abandon the Lord and serve other gods. Don't you worry about us, Joshua. We remember Egypt. We remember Pharaoh. We remember what slavery was like, and we don't ever want to serve a foreign king ever again. Last part of verse 18. So we too, Joshua, you said you're going to serve the Lord. We too, we will serve the Lord for he alone is our God. Perish the thought that we would ever turn our backs on the living God. How long do you think they kept that commitment? Let me show you. Verse 21. Oh, wait. Actually. But the people ain't. Oh, wait, wait. I, I skipped something. So, so they say, no, we will serve God. We will serve God. And, and Joshua goes, actually, I don't think you will. He taunts them. He's like, uh, you're going to turn your back on God. You don't understand. He's a jealous God. You don't understand. You are going to fall. And then, then they said, people answered in verse 21. No, we will serve the Lord. Exclamation point. That means we're serious. That's what it means in our family when you text and you put an exclamation point. They're serious. You read it like that. No, we will serve the Lord. Look at verse 31. The people of Israel served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua and of the elders who outlived him, those who had personally experienced all that the Lord had had done for Israel. Here's the really sad thing, man, exclamation point, we will serve God. Oh, you choose God, we will choose God. The flowers on the last grave of the last elder who died had not even faded yet. I'm not even sure they'd changed out of their funeral clothes before they turned their backs on the living God. They did the exact thing they swore they would never do. The thing that Joshua had warned them about, they did. And see, what they what they began to do is they started looking around. They go, hey, these people can do this. We want to do that. And it's not politically to correct, correct to say that we serve the only true God. We want these people to like us. So we're going to do the things that they're doing. We want to be like them. We want to be liked by them. And the next thing you know, Israel has abandoned the one true God, the invisible king. And they become just like the Canaanites right after they made this commitment. Now, chapter one in, in Judges is kind of like the press release, the spin that the Israelites want you to, to understand for why they were not successful in, in taking all of the promised land. And if all you did was read chapter one, you go, man, this makes sense why they didn't take the land. So here it is, Joshua, what, uh, Judges 1-1. After the death of Joshua, the Israelites asked the Lord, which tribe should go first to attack the Canaanites? All right, next next map up there, Justin. So here we are, 
they ask of God who should go, which tribe should start driving out the rest of the people in the promised land. So Judah, Judah is a very prominent um, tribe. And, and so God said, you go first. Now, the, the very first thing they did was they turned their backs on God. They didn't trust God totally. You see, Simeon is down here. Simeon is completely contained within the territory of Judah. And so they said, hey, Simeon, why don't you go with us? Instead of depending on God, they said, Simeon, go with us. And so they didn't trust God fully. And they go and they start driving out people. And, and if you read the, the whole first chapter, there's some really cool stuff about Caleb in there. Um, Caleb and Joshua were the only two people above 20 years old that came out of the wilderness. Everybody else died because they refused to go into the promised land the first time. So they had to wander 40 years. Joshua and Caleb are the two that, that I love out of this whole story. And my son was named Caleb because I love Caleb. Janie wouldn't let me name him Joshua because Josh Washburn was too hard to say. Has nothing to do with the story, but now you know where Caleb got his name. Uh, God had told them, Moses had told them, when you move into the promised land, you're supposed to destroy these people. He said, don't make treaties with them. Don't worship their gods. Don't, don't let your children marry their kids. Don't let their children marry your kids. You need to get rid of these people. It had nothing to do with vengeance. It had nothing to do with economics. It was all spiritual because God said, if you live in the land with these people, their gods will seduce you. And look what happens in verse 19. Now the Lord was with Judah and they took possession of the hill country. And this has to be the strangest verse in the Bible. If you know anything about God, this is strange because look what happens. Now the Lord was with Judah and they took possession of the hill country, but they could not drive out the inhabitants of the valley because they had iron chariots. Do you see the irony? The Lord was with them, but they could not do this. I don't think there's any other place in scripture where it says the Lord was with them, but they failed. I've not found that. If you find that, please show that to me. I don't understand because if there is a God, if God is the one who spoke the world into existence, if God is the one who created Adam and Eve from the dust, if he breathed life into them, if God is the one who led them out of Egypt and he he led them across the, the Red Sea, He opened up the Red Sea so that the Israelites walked along on dry ground. And then as soon as Pharaoh's army rushes in, God closes the sea up so that the entire Egyptian army is wiped out at one time. Then they wander in the wilderness for 40 years. Their clothes do not wear out. Their feet do not swell. They have food for 40 years in the wilderness. When they get ready to go into the promised land, Joshua leads them across the Jordan River at flood stage. The Jordan River at flood stage is is a half a mile, maybe a mile wide, kind of like the Mississippi when, um, when you get across there. God dried up the Jordan river for 18 miles so that the Israelites walked into the promised grand uh, land on dry ground. Then when they go to Jericho, God makes the walls fall down everywhere except Rahab's house because Rahab had protected the spies. So miraculously her house is not destroyed. If God can do all of that, do you think some chariots in the lowland are going to be a problem for him? No, it's ludicrous. I don't even understand. The tribe of Judah didn't believe God could do the miraculous, so they only partially obeyed. And if you read the rest of the chapter, it says Manasseh didn't drive out all the people and Asher didn't drive out all the people and Ephraim didn't drive out all the people. God said, drive out the people. But in chapter one, they're, they're giving you this spin report of, well, they, they had iron chariots and we decided to make them slaves because that was easier than drive them out. And if all you did was read chapter one, you go, it makes sense that they lived alongside these people. But then you come to chapter two and you get God's explanation for their failure. And it's quite a bit different. You see, 
the reason God didn't want them to, to live with these people is because God knew that the idols would become a snare for them and be kind of like landmines right underneath the surface, waiting any moment to explode and destroy the spiritual lives of the people of the Israelites. And, and if you put up with idols in your life, they're, they're lurking under the surface and they're going to explode at some point. And they're going to destroy your spiritual life. So in chapter two, here's what God says. Here's his explanation for their failure. For your part, you were not to make any covenants with the people living in the land. Instead, you were to destroy their altars, but you disobeyed my command. Why did you do this? And here's the key. In, in 119 that I just read you, the Israelites said we could not, we could not drive out these people because they had iron chariots. God says in, chap, in verse two, chapter two, verse two, he says, you would not. You said you could not. God says, no, 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 no. You would not. You were disobedient. You refused to obey me. And so I I just have to stop and ask you, where are you saying to God, I can't do something? When God is saying to you, no, it's you won't do it. You see, because I don't know if you realize this. When God tells you to do something, there's no such thing as I can't do it. So God says you're to forgive people. I can't forgive him. Let's just be gut level honest. Stop saying I can't forgive that person. And you just tell God I won't. I refuse to obey you. Because just like you forgave me through Jesus on the cross, I'm supposed to give other forgive other people. I won't, God. Let's be honest. Don't say I can't. I can't tell him the truth because the truth would crush him. The Bible says speak the truth in love. So let's just be honest and say, I'm a coward and I won't speak the truth to somebody because I'm afraid it might hurt their feelings. Don't say I can't say I won't. And then people say, I can't resist temptation. I couldn't help myself. No, 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 no. First Corinthians 10, 13 says, no temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man and God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will, will give you endurance so that you may be able to bear up underneath it. Don't say I can't resist, say I refuse to resist temptation. Let's be honest today. Now I want you to see what happens in in verse 10. After that generation died, and here's my biggest fear from the time I've been in ministry. When I, when I was 19, when I, when I started ministering to church, I was 18 when I, I said, God, I'll follow you anywhere. I'll do whatever you want. When I was 19, here's my biggest fear. Right here, after that generation died, one generation is all it took. After that generation died, another generation grew up who did not acknowledge the Lord or remember the mighty things he had done for Israel. It takes one generation to forget who God is and for the nation to be destroyed. The Israelites did evil in the Lord's sight and served the images of Baal. They abandoned the Lord, the God of their ancestors who had brought them out of Egypt. They went after other gods, worshiping the gods of the people around them. And they angered the Lord. They abandoned the Lord to serve Baal and the images of Ashtoreth. Here's when we mess up. The root of our disobedience is when we is failing to remember who God is. It's when we fail to remember who God is. That's when we become disobedient. The first generation after Joshua, they, they were partially obedient, which means they were disobedient. They mixed religions. We want some of this of God. We want some of this of Baal and Ashtoreth. We want to mix these religions because we, we don't want to um, offend anyone. Let me tell you, every time you forget, every time you forget who God is, you will do evil. It's, it's not a, it's not an error in judgment. It's sin. It's not, I, I, I have an affair, it's I commit adultery. 
It's not, oh, there's a little indiscretion. It's a sin against the living God. Every time you forget, you will do evil. And see, here's the really strange thing. Baal actually means, B-A-A-L, actually means Lord or little king, miniature king. It's kind of funny if you think about it. They traded the worship of the one true king for a miniature, for an idol. We all know in, in, in the Ten Commandments it says, you shall have no other gods in my sight. That's number one. Then it says, you shall not bow down to an idol. And it was bad enough that they were bowing down to this little wooden image. It'd be like worshiping this bottle of water. Oh, help me, bottle of water. I have bills. It's ludicrous, but it's worse than that. It's, it's worse than bowing down to this little wooden image. You see, Baal was the, the Lord and Ashtoreth was his female counterpart. They actually participated. They, they wanted people to, to participate in, in prostitution as part of their worship. That's just bizarre. It gets worse than that. Whenever they thought that, that Baal wasn't paying attention, they would sacrifice human beings. If there was a severe famine or drought in the land or if the enemy was, was about to destroy them, they would, they would sacrifice lots of children. And if Baal still didn't answer, there was one time they had the richest people sacrifice their oldest child. It's like the poor kids he's not paying attention to. Baal wants rich kids to die. Isn't that bizarre? In my mind, when I read that, I could just see Satan back here pulling the strings and laughing at these morons who thought sacrificing children would please some deity. They're destroying lives. So God says to the Israelites, you can't be a part of that worship. Do you understand why it's so serious? Why they weren't supposed to live next to them? Why they were to utterly destroy them? Tear down their altars? Tear down their temples? Because God says, if you hang out with them, you're going to become like them. And that's exactly what happened. Look at Judges 2.14. This made the Lord burn with anger against Israel because they started doing the things that everybody else did. So he handed them over to raiders who stole their possessions. He turned them over to their enemies all around and they were no longer able to resist them. Every time Israel went out to battle, the Lord fought against them, causing them to be defeated just as he had warned. And the people were in great distress. I think that was probably an understatement. The God who had fought for them now was fighting against him. So if you know about the New Testament in Romans chapter 8 verse 31, it says, if God is for us, who can be against us? We sing songs to that. If God is for us, who can be against us? In this passage though, It said God was against them. If God is against you, you got no hope. Everywhere they went, the Lord was fighting against them and it caused them to be in great distress. So here's what God said to him. His response to them is, I'm going to let you be conquered by the people you copied. You love their ways, serve them because you've forsaken me. And here's the deal. Here's what you need to understand. And this is why walking with Christ is a serious deal. Halfway followers of Jesus, halfway followers of God lose their freedom. That's why God says it's an all or nothing deal. You don't casually date the bride of Christ. It's his bride. He died. There's two institutions that God set up in this world. One is the physical family. Did that in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. Then Jesus Christ came to establish the spiritual family. Those two things have preeminence in God's kingdom. 
And we turn our backs on those two. What does Satan attack? The physical family and the spiritual family over and over again. So here's this little thing they did. In no time at all, they went from conquering other lands to being conquered by those lands. And this is the little formula they went through. This is what you and I do when we turn our backs on God. First of all, commitment is replaced by complacency. So what happens at camp? We, we draw a line and say, God, God, I'm, I'm going to be committed to you and we mean it. We go back and we get complacent. And when we get complacent, it leads to compromise. So people, first of all, they turn their back on God. They forsake God. They start following the people around them and they lose their freedom. Now, here's what we don't understand until it's too late. We start off with this attitude. No one's going to tell me what to do. I'm going to do what I want, when I want, with whom I want. And you can't tell me what to do. But when you do that, there's going to come a time when you're going to wake up and say, I no longer can do what I want. I'm trapped in the very thing that I wanted so badly. It now rules me. Israel, all they did was they tried one king for another. When you turn your back on the, on the one true king, you are going to have another king. They're no longer able to resist. They become slaves to the thing they wanted so badly. And, And see, every one of us has a story. Most of us grew up in church, but even if you didn't grow up in church, you grew up knowing right from wrong. And there came a point in your life where you said, I'm tired of doing what's right. That usually comes when God doesn't do what you want when he wants. You say, I'll show you God and you turn your back on God and you go do that thing to show your independence. And then before you know it, you are trapped by that thing you wanted so badly. Some of you, it was very uh, gradual. You, the first time you did it, you actually felt guilty and you said, oh man, I've sinned. Second time you did it, it didn't hurt as bad. Third time it didn't hurt as bad. Eventually your sin becomes normal. And you don't even feel it because you're so callous to the things of God. You see, some point you decided, I don't need a king. I certainly don't need an invisible king who's never on my side, who never does what I want him to do. And then one day you woke up and you went, "Uh oh, I'm trapped. I didn't gain freedom. I lost it. It's because you trade one king for another. See, I'm going to get really, really unpolitically correct for a moment. You were created, which means there is a creator, which means you were never designed to be in charge. You were created not to be your own king. You were created to be ruled over, not controlled, ruled over. And every time you turn your back on God, you choose another king. And if you're not sure who that king is, there's people in your life who know. Ask your kids the number one thing in your life. If you've got enough courage, they'll tell you. Ask your spouse, what is number one? Ask your best friend. If you were just to examine my life, what would, what would my life tell other people is number one? If you got enough courage, ask somebody that. You see, there's a whole bunch of little kings that are vying for your attention. And, and we're going to put several up there. I'm not going to talk about all of them. But let me talk about a couple. There's a little king called appetite. And, and it may be physical appetite, but it may be sexual appetite. It may be power. It may be money. It may be, may be materialism. There's this, there's this appetite in you. And you get tired after a while. And you say, I'm, I'm tired of feeling like a failure. I'm tired of not having any fun. I'm going to give in to this appetite. And a few weeks or or months or years later, all of a sudden you go, oh no, I'm controlled by my appetite. 
insecurity. It may be where you work or where you go to school. It's not popular to follow God and, and you want to be liked by other people. So you never stand up for God. And before you know it, insecurity has set up on the throne of your life and you never make a single decision in your life unless you think they would approve of that decision. You've traded one king for another. And, and you know, there's, there's fear and comparison, lust and greed, materialism. What about family history? Some of you, you spend your entire life saying, one thing I will not do is I will not be like my dad. I will not be like my mom. My family will not be like my family. And I just need to tell you real clearly that if you turn your back on God, your family history will repeat itself. Because chances are somebody in your family history, the thing you're running from, you don't want to repeat. Somebody did what they wanted, when they wanted, and that's caused all of the damage in your family. And if you do the same thing, you will repeat history. You won't gain freedom. You'll lose it, and then you'll bind your children to repeat the same thing unless they come to God. God is the one who frees us from the little kings. See, the little kings, they tempt you to say, I won't do that. I won't obey. I won't go to church. I won't give to church. I won't, I won't um, serve other people. I won't, I won't, I won't. And those little kings are going, you the man, tell them, yeah. Before you know it, there come a day when you go, oops. It's no longer I won't, it's I can't. Because I'm a slave to that appetite I was feeding. The thing I wanted so badly is in charge of my life now. I want to go back to church and have people who love me, but I can't. I want to go back to when people didn't like me, but I like myself. Do you know, I've had two text conversations over the last two weeks where people have been, been not coming to church. They used to be regulars here all the time. And in both instances, they told me I can't come back to church. I said, why? And they said, I'm so embarrassed by what I've done that I can't come back to church. The little king is in charge. And I said, if there's ever a church where you can come back, it's this one. But they're buying the lie that the little king is in charge. And see, here's the problem with little kings. They don't love you. The true king does. The little king doesn't love you. They don't have your best interest in mind. They want you to be a slave. Little kings are not merciful. The one true king is. The little kings want to control you. The, the true king doesn't want to control you. He wants to rule over you because he knows what's best. And I want to show you what happened in Judges when they chose the little kings. I want to show you what happens in your life when you choose the little king over the one true king. Verse 8, chapter 3, verse 8. Then the Lord burned with anger against Israel and he turned them over to King Cushan Rishathaim. Say that several times. King Cushan Rishathaim of Aram Naharaim. And then just for fun, God puts it in there again. And the Israelites served Cushan Rishathaim for eight years. God said, you like those Canaanites so much, I'm going to give you a Canaanite king. And then God, God goes, at least you can pronounce my name. You want to serve God or King Cushan Rishathaim? <laughs> and this is the crazy thing to me. For eight years, all the power that they needed was right there. For eight years, they refused to cry out to God. For eight years, they chose slavery over freedom. Who in their right mind would choose slavery? You and me. 
every time we put something in first place that is not God. You put your work in first place, you, you choose slavery. You put recreation, you put pornography, you put relation, you put sex, whatever it is that's, that's not God, you choose slavery. Now here's, here's the thing. If you've chosen slavery, here's the thing. At the end of eight years, they said, God, we have sinned. They cried out to God and I want you to see how God responds. Verse nine. But when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help, the Lord raised up a rescuer to save them. When they said, God, help us, God said, yes. And here's the thing you've got to realize. The one true king is the only one who sends a rescuer when you cry out. The little kings, they just want to keep you in bondage. Because they don't care. Some of you need to cry out to God today. Some of you are ready to cry out to God today. I want you to realize that this book of Judges teaches us that God is a merciful God. He's so merciful, though, he will not force himself on you. He wants you to choose to love him. And the only way that God ever knows who loves him is by giving you and me a choice. Slap that up there. There you go. He gives us a choice. And when we choose to love him, he says, there's one of mine. And when you choose to love something else, God's not required to do anything to provide for you, to protect you, to help you. He only helps those who choose him. Just like he took Israel back over and over and over again, God will take you back over and over again. Our church started for people who were far from God, who needed a place where they could come and come back to God. But here's the thing. We celebrate when you come back to God. Woo, we've baptized people over here. We've celebrated people who've been far from God for many years. A lot of times when we do our, our 101 class, we'll have people who are joining our church who hadn't been in a church for 15 or 20 years. And we celebrate that. But here's, here's my caution to you. And, and everybody who's, who's been away from God, who's come back, they'll tell you the same thing. They wasted a lot of years in bondage that they can never get back. See, my desire is for my kids not to ever have to go through some of the things I went through. I pray that my girls will, will never get tired of being good. Because you can't get your college years back once you've lived them. You can't get your 20s, your 30s, your 40s back. Stop wasting time serving little gods and put the one true king back on the throne. Would you bow your heads for just a moment? It's time to get gut level honest. And I want you to ask yourself, what has been ruling your life? Is it the one true king or is there a little king that you've bowed down to? And I'm going to ask you a couple of questions. How many of you would admit that, that there have been times that you have chosen little kings over the one true king? Would you raise your hand? That's a bunch of us. All right, put your hands down. How many of you would admit right now I feel trapped by a little king? Would you raise your hands? That's a lot of us. All right, you can put them down. If you are trapped by a little king, Scripture says... First John 1 John 1.9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The true king is just a cry away. So I'm going to ask you to pray right where you are. If you're trapped by a little king, I want you to pray silently. Dear God, would you rescue me from this little king that I have bowed down to? Would you give me the desire 
to live my life for the one true king. Now, keep your heads bowed for just a minute. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to play a song for you. It's by Hillsong United. It's called, When I Lost My Heart to You. And, and really, the issue today is the condition of your heart. Where your heart is, that's where your treasure is. You will follow your heart. And, and I'm going to just play this song, and I want you to read the words. You may not know this song. I want you to read the words when it starts in just a minute. Some of you may want to come up to the altar. In the first service, there were several people who, who knelt at the altar. Some knelt where they were. You need to do some business with God, and it all has to do with the condition of your heart. Listen to this song, and when it's finished, I'll dismiss us. Thick that you breathe down on my wall. 
See, that's the deal. It's all about your heart, the condition of your heart. Whatever has your heart has you. And God is a jealous God. He wants all of you. He doesn't offer his blessings, his grace, his mercy to people who who serve idols. He offers his mercy and his grace and his love and his blessing and his provision to those who say, you have my heart. There's none other that competes with you. So my challenge to you today is, is to walk in a manner that reflects that he is your true king. Which means you have to make decisions that might not be popular. But you're not going to stand in front of your boss someday after you die. You're not going to stand in front of your mom, your dad, your aunt, your uncles, your friends, your spouse. You're going to stand before the living God. And you will answer for what you gave your heart to.